Uh, I would encourage people to get close to people that inspire them. Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and expert clinicians in critical care. We ask them to share their insights about relevant critical care topics. And for today, we go to Pittsburgh to discuss precision medicine in the ICU. Hi, I'm Derek Angus. I'm uh, chair of the Department of Critical Care Medicine here at the University of Pittsburgh. Great. Um, so today we'll be talking about precision medicine in the ICU, and I want to start off by asking you, why do we need uh, precision medicine in the ICU? Ah. Uh, well, I might step back a little bit and reflect on, um, obviously, precision medicine is a slightly uh, cutesy term that gets uh, some people upset because they would argue that haven't we always tried to be precise? Um, I think conceptually, all we're trying to do with precision medicine is uh, get at the notion that two patients who might appear similar can actually have slightly different underlying mechanisms of disease in play. And those differences can have implications for best therapy. Um, in the ICU, um, we have a very complex milieu of all sorts of syndromes that look similar on the outside. So, for example, someone with um, um, infiltrates on their chest X-ray and hypoxia um, can be heart failure or ARDS. Even if we rule out heart failure, when we look at ARDS, there's many, many, many different things that could be driving the ARDS. There can be different degrees of physiologic uh, disruption to the lungs. There can be different underlying molecular pathways activated. And the causative agents causing, whether it was a mnemonic insult or whether it was after, for example, massive blood transfusion, all of these things um, can have very different implications for the right treatment. Precision medicine is really just trying, <clears throat> it's, it's like a basket or a catch-all for the idea of trying to be smarter about working out which therapies should be best given to which patient. And while I would agree that this has been at the essence of medicine forever, it's taken on a new allure in recent years coming out of the world of cancer and has implications both for therapies that are more carefully tied to specific molecular defects, and also has a lot of implications for trial design, trying to think about trial designs that are smarter about understanding which therapies work in which patients. So you mentioned um, how the, the cancer services or the cancer research has influenced uh, or advanced the, the understanding of precision medicine. Maybe you could give us a bit of background about that and how you foresee um, those advances impacting uh, precision medicine in the ICU. Sure. So um, cancer is definitely the poster child for precision medicine. Uh, it's why Joe Biden's talking about a moonshot in cancer and not a moonshot stroke. It's why um, 
the White House Precision Medicine Initiative largely has talked about, or quite explicitly has said, that the first big push is going to be in cancer, as endorsed by Francis Collins. Part of that goes back to some early wins in cancer. For example, uh, the recognition that um, cell surface markers on breast tumors would be predictive of different therapies, whether it's estrogen receptors or HER2 receptor status, etc. Uh, and also even some um, uh, molecular gene expression um, profiles like uh, uh, the MAMA print, uh, which is 20 or 30 different genes that uh, are predictive of uh, the progression of the tumor. All of these different biomarkers can subtype patients. So in the old days, you might have staged breast cancer simply by whether there was node involvement or distal involvement, and that's still important for prognosis. But but even after adjusting for the size and shape of the tumor and whether there's local auxiliary uh, node involvement, it also turned out that if the tumor markers were or were not positive, um, then that would predict whether a particular therapy would work or not. And there would be less need to give a certain therapy in certain patients and more need to give it in the, in the others. Now, put more simply, that would mean that if you did a trial where you gave all patients the same therapy, if that therapy either didn't work or actively caused harm in the patients that didn't have the particular subtype that responded, you could accidentally have a negative trial even though it was a positive therapy. So um, <clears throat> while breast cancer got up and running uh, as possibly the poster child, there have been a variety of breakthroughs in other diseases, most notably, for example, uh, the BRAF mutations, and then subsequently uh, targeting um, uh, immune cell infiltration and suppression of immune cell function in the tumor environment in metastatic melanoma has had a massive effect on the mean duration of survival in metastatic melanoma. So the idea is that perhaps um, we were not winning the war on cancer in the past because we weren't uh, adequately subtyping cancers into the specific cancers that might have specific mutations that could be targeted by different therapies, um, led to this notion that, aha, uh, we will solve cancer with a precision medicine. And then as soon as uh, people started investing in cancer and saying, well, the way forward for cancer is precision medicine, then everyone said, uh, well, maybe that would work in other diseases as well. Um, and so it's fueled, and, and, and the analogy works variably for other diseases. We can talk about it in a minute. But uh, some diseases are seen as relatively homogenous. Others are seen as also having important variants or subtypes. Certainly autoimmune disease, for example, uh, it's still not exactly clear why um, and different anti-TNF agents will work variably in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And so there's a sort of try one and see the response, and if not, try another. But people would like to try to predict or understand exactly why Enbrel would help one patient and not another. 
get you. Um, so how would you see those advances in cancer research uh, impacting research in, for example, sepsis or ARDS? Because the environment or uh, the, the workflow in an ICU is fairly different from that um, of an oncologic service. Yeah. So a couple of things. Um, so first of all, um, it still has to begin with the trials. Like, I don't really think you can advocate a precision medicine approach without knowing whether it works. So you still need to do randomized trials, first of all, to see whether um, a treatment strategy that did more precise phenotyping of the patient uh, actually improved outcome. And so the first thing is to then have a discussion about what what we mean by the phrase phenotype or subtype or subphenotype or genotype these terms get thrown around all the time um obviously back in genetics 101 you can probably remember that genotype was the genetic variant and phenotype was the clinical expression of the genetic variant in clinical trials when we talk about phenotypes we really only mean the phenotype observable at the time of randomization. So, for example, for some inherited diseases, the phenotype is intrauterine death. So the, the, there's no randomized trial in a baby if the baby has already died. So phenotype can actually incorporate outcome. But in the framework of precision medicine, if we're going to do trials, when we use the term phenotype, we're kind of talking about What's observable before you start treatment? So in other words, you come to the bedside, and if it's a cancer example, the person has presented with a lump. You've done the biopsy. At this point, you don't yet know what will happen in the future, but you're now ready to randomize the patient. And based on a combination of lymph node involvement and various biomarkers, you can subtype that breast cancer patient as HER2 positive or negative, uh, Eastern receptor positive or negative, mammoprint positive or negative, and lymph node positive or negative. So that's actually four categories that could all be plus or minus. So that's already two to the four. So there's 16 different subtypes, if that makes sense. Uh, and that's essentially what people can do in a cancer trial. They can bring in a patient and then subtype them into subgroups. And then they can do trials to see whether the therapy works in one another. Now, you asked, how would this work in the ICU? Well, it's, it's both easy and difficult to see the analogy. So the first thing is you could say, well, let's say we were doing a sepsis trial. I could equally divide them into gram-negative versus gram-positive. I could maybe um, divide them into which organs are failing at presentation. So someone that shows up with sepsis and they've got cardiovascular collapse is maybe different from someone that doesn't have cardiovascular collapse. Maybe uh, whether they have ARDS or not. So I could have a variety of features. Um, I could maybe even have some underlying patient characteristics, like whether the patient has underlying chronic disease or whether they're very elderly. And of course, I could then also consider sophisticated biomarkers, like would I measure whether they have TNF or IL-6 and so forth. Um, perhaps some patients, when they present with sepsis, are very hyperinflammatory with high IL-6 levels. 
whereas other patients perhaps uh, are relatively immunosuppressed with actually low HLA-DR. So we have putative clinical and biologic markers that we could type the patient with. So in that way, it's easy to make the analogy to cancer. Where it's difficult to make the analogy is if someone presents with breast cancer, you might want to start treatment within the next couple of weeks. So you could send off some, you could do a tumor biopsy and send it off for genetic markers. You could wait a few days. If someone presents with sepsis, uh, there's two immediate problems. One is, how do you get all of this information instantly? Like most therapies for someone in the throes of septic shock, you might want to start within a few hours, not within days and days and days. So there are some real logistic hurdles about um, doing the phenotyping and grouping the patient um, uh, quickly, um, getting even a rapid HLA-DR, rapid IL-6. It's not impossible, but it's certainly not part of routine practice. Uh, the other thing is um, you have to think about the course of time. Uh, someone is in shock now, but they not, might not be in shock uh, 12 hours later. Someone um, is very hyperinflammatory now, but uh, might be relatively immunosuppressed tomorrow. And so you have to be somewhat thoughtful um, about how you would deal with the course of time. My suggestion to begin with is still to say, well, right now, I'm looking at a patient who looks like they're septic, and they, if I measured IL-6, I could at least make a decision about whether they're relatively pro-inflammatory or not, based on whether they have a high IL-6. The IL-6 will still be around for a little bit. They might eventually flip from being hyper-inflammatory to being relatively immunosuppressed, but for right now, it is information. Um, that they are hyperinflammatory versus, for example, relatively immunosuppressed or some sort of mixed picture. That's a very, very uh, useful overview. Um, so how would you uh, recommend we go about designing these trials? I, I know you've um, mentioned the role of adaptive design or platform trials. Maybe you could explain those uh, to our audience and, and, and how you foresee such trials working in the future. Right. So, hopefully everything I've said so far makes you realize that there's just like a ton of stuff we don't know. <laughs> it's entirely um, putative that knowing that someone has a high L6 provides any useful information. Um, that's also true in cancer. Um, if I type a cancer and I find a particular mutation, there may have been some animal studies that showed that that mutation is associated with bad progression of disease. There could even have been clinical studies showing that uh, people who die of aggressive disease are more likely to have a particular mutation or some marker on their tumor cell. Okay, so let's assume you have a hunch that something portends badness. That doesn't mean to say that um, that person 
will be more likely to respond to particular treatment. Um, if you take melanoma and you look at something like BRAF mutations, a drug that specifically targets BRAF mutations, it's certainly the case that if you don't have any measurable BRAF mutations, you would think it likely that the drug wouldn't help. Of course, um, that still then presumes that you know how to measure for BRAF mutations. Um, but stepping back, um, the point is that even in cancer, you can have an idea about a way to subtype um, a particular cancer into, say, subtype A and subtype B. And you can have an idea that the drug that you're going to test will work best in patients with subtype A and subtype B, but you don't know for a fact. And that's exactly the same for sepsis. So, for example, um, we have tested anti-TNF agents in the past. Anti-TNF agents probably would be better targeted to patients who have TNF disease. Uh, now, TNF is a fickle marker that's often only in the serum for transient periods of time, but maybe IL-6 is a marker of TNF. So maybe patients with high IL-6 would get a better response from an anti-TNF. We don't know if that's true. Uh, Patients that have a normal or a low IL-6 may still benefit from an anti-TNF. We don't know. So, uh, and, and this would go on and on for any other therapy. Um, choose the immunomodulating agent of your choice, and then you can make up a theory about who it might work best in. There's then a couple of things you can do. You can say, I'm so sure of my theory. I will just do a very traditional trial design in just the patients that I think it'll work in. So um, I've got a, a drug that targets BRAF. I'm going to give it to melanoma patients that are BRAF mutation positive, and I'm not even going to test it in anyone else. That's fine. But if you had a drug that... Um, you weren't quite sure about the subtypes. You could design a trial where you enrolled patients with both subtypes. So you have a drug you think will work best in patients with subtype A. Let's call that high IL-6. But you're not convinced. You could enroll patients. You could type them at enrollment and work out whether they're subtype A or subtype B. But then you could nonetheless randomize them to your therapy or to usual care, regardless of whether they're subtype A and subtype B. And then you could watch and wait. And if you'd powered the study well enough with lots of A's and lots of B's, you could get to the end of the trial and say, aha, looks like this drug works really well in A and does nothing in B. That's just what I thought we should give this uh, drug to people with subtype A. Um, and that's still a traditional trial design, albeit that you are powering ahead of time to ask in these two different subgroups. Turns out that it's not that efficient. Um, if you wanted to test multiple drugs in multiple subtypes, then you would quite quickly have a huge study. Imagine if there were subtypes A, B, and C, 
and you had three different drugs as well as usual care. Um, there's three experimental arms and usual care. That's four arms, and there's three subtypes. So that's 12, four times C, 12 different buckets. Well, if you gave, if you made every group the same size, and you needed to have enough power to test any one drug against usual care in each of the three subtypes, then you would just need thousands and thousands of patients. So what adaptive trials have tried to do is use a Bayesian inference that tries to engage in things like play-the-winner designs. So you start out, for example, exposing the patients in subtype A to usual care plus all three of the therapies. But if after a few months, um, one of the therapy is a dog and just is doing nothing, or if anything, looks like it might be harmful, um, and clearly doesn't look as good as the other ones. And so you're pretty sure that if any of the therapies work here, it's certainly not that first one. It's one of the other two. You could make a decision that in the next block of randomization, the odds of getting that poorly performing drug would drop. Now, that poorly performing drug could still be randomized in the other subtypes, subtype B and subtype C, but subtype A would now not have as much chance to get that drug that didn't appear to be doing very well. That's an example of something called response adaptive randomization, where the randomization changes or adapts over time based on the early response inside the trial. Now, these aren't investigators making these decisions. These are all predetermined algorithms. Um, so it's all modeled ahead of time. And so, so the, there's, it's, it's not an issue of being unblinded. It's actually the, the computerized randomization knows uh, to to decrease exposure to poorly performing drugs and increase the exposure to better performing drugs on a hunch. It's actually on the probable estimates. And of course, if it turns out that that hunch then doesn't play out in subsequent blocks of randomization, then you can actually move back to the middle again and move back and bring back the randomization to that first drug later in the trial. But if it turns out that the hunch was right, then you can quite quickly get rid of drugs that are not apparently doing very well. And so you adapt and you more efficiently find the drugs that appear to be performing best within the different subgroups. That whole class of drug, I'm sorry, that whole class of trial, these sort of adaptive trials, has really gained a huge amount of traction in precision medicine because precision medicine is by definition subtyping into lots of subgroups. You're then maybe testing multiple different therapies and so you have this problem of multiple potential therapies in multiple potential subgroups. And it is inefficient to ask every question individually with the same precision. 
if something appears to not be working as well, dump that part of the question and concentrate your efforts on finding the drugs that appear to be performing best. And so there's lots of examples in cancer, and there's the beginnings of movement of trying to think about doing adaptive trials um, in in the field of intensive care as well, borrowing from the same principle. Well, that's really fascinating. Um, and then to, to change tack slightly, um, you mentioned that we'd be obtaining clinical data um, and a lot of genomic, transcriptomic, or proteomic data. And in one of your articles, you mentioned that you could have up to maybe 10 trillion uh, data points. How do you make sense of all that data, and uh, what role will artificial intelligence play uh, in the ICU in the future? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, right. So we we wrote about um, the, the scale of the data are definitely daunting. Um, you know, if we go back to the example, um, if I'm biopsying a tumor, uh, I'm really only focusing on the tumor. Now, it turns out that tumors are not nearly as homogenous as we thought they were. And so with deep sequencing, we've begun to realize that there's a lot of heterogeneity even among the tumor cells that was sort of invisible to us beforehand. That when you did less deep sequencing, you were essentially averaging across lots of cells and presuming they were all behaving homogeneously. And as you sequence to a deeper level, you can begin to understand that there's a mosaic of genetic variants even within the tumor. But that is still within one tumor or within one metastasis. When you start thinking about something like sepsis, um, it, your mind explodes. <laughs> uh, first of all, um, we generally think of the tumor as all bad. And so we just want to get rid of it. Um, but what, who's, who's the bad guy in sepsis? Um, is it the white cell? I mean, yes, we might want to get rid of pathogenic organisms in the bloodstream, but we usually do that really, really well with antibiotics. What we're left with is this complex host response where there's all sorts of different white cells which are all behaving in very different ways in all manner of different compartments across the body. And then there's a ton of molecules not just cells, but circulating active moieties that are doing all sorts of functions, interfering with the way cells roll through the body, interfering with the way cells use oxygen, use other substrates, interfering with um, endothelium, with smooth muscle contraction. It's all happening differently in every endothelial bed. And what's happening in the bloodstream is different than what's happening in the parenchyma. Yowza, yowza, yowza. So um, it becomes fantastically complex to think about all the different parts of the body you could theoretically have a window on. And even if you were trying to manipulate the immune system in the throes of sepsis, um, you give an agent it might affect all the white cells the same way, but you might want white cells behaving very differently with a compromised blood-brain barrier uh, versus what they're doing in the kidney or in the liver or in the bloodstream and so forth. So <laughs> that's all to say um, 
that that's the defeatist part of the blog, where I, where I just sort of ru- ruminate over how the scale is mind-boggling, um, and then point out that what we have done is largely engage in huge simplifying exercises, some of which might be appropriate, but some of which are really just based on convenience. So the first huge thing we do is we tend to measure things in the blood. And we measure things in the blood because we can. Now, the blood may often actually be a good window on systemic processes, uh, but it may also be a lousy window. And so I don't mind that we measure things in the blood, but we should always remember that that could be a good move or a terrible move. Um, uh, If someone is functionally immunosuppressed, uh, is that always going to be detectable by showing that circulating white cells exhibit an immunosuppressed phenotype? Or is it possible that white cells not in the bloodstream are are underperforming in a critical way that's a threat to health, and yet we can't tell from circulating white cells. I don't know. Um, uh, you know, you can take some confidence that when Richard Hodgkiss did his postmortem studies and uh, he found some correlation between circulating white cell uh, measures of immunosuppression and functional measures of immunosuppression among white cells identified in the spleen and so on. But that was a tiny little study, and these were dead people. Um, uh, so uh, we, the, the, the scale is daunting, and the, uh, what limits us right now is that we just don't even measure these things. But eventually, we may be able to measure it. There's an explosion in what we're able to measure. Even if you get away from measuring things like white cell function, uh, we might not be that far away from very sophisticated, non-invasive monitoring of organ parenchymal function, um, where you could have continuous monitoring in a variety of different ways of brain function, cardiac function, uh, lung function, and so forth. And even when I say the phrase lung function, what is lung function? And the lung does many different things, did of the liver and so forth. So um, every year, uh, our colleagues in the biomedical device world and the diagnostic world are coming up with fancier and fancier ways to measure things. And so they're taking care of finding smarter ways to create massive data sets. Then we have to ask, how do we shrink these data sets into usable patterns? Um, And that will probably come in a couple of different ways. One is uh, there could actually be some emerging properties, uh, things that you hadn't predicted, but sort of large um, sort of meta-movements of data um, that arise from within these millions and millions of data points. And that is exactly the sort of things that people are looking for, for example, within microbiome data, where the scale of the data points are massive, but you look for aggregating patterns in the data. Uh, The other thing is uh, 
um, it's one thing to see a pattern, and what could the, the pattern can be a variety of things. It could be surprising ways in which two patients appear to be alike, um, or it could be patterns that are um, um, predictive of doing badly later, and so forth. Um, there's still then the issue of um, whether that has any implications for how to treat a patient. So I still think that um, you don't just, like ultimately these complex patterns uh, still have to then be divided down into, converted into actions, discrete actions. Given the pattern I'm seeing, given the data I'm seeing, should I or should I not start therapy A? Now, it could be much more complicated than starting therapy A. It could be uh, several domains of therapy with multiple choices in, uh, within each one. So there could be a hundred different recipes. And it's then, given the pattern I'm seeing, should I put this person into recipe 78? Um, and the answer to that still has to be that uh, when given recipe 78, my patient has a better chance of recovery than when given recipe 77 or any of the other recipes. So although these data sets can still be crunched through a variety of large machine learning algorithms to come up with putative phenotypes, the end game, in my mind, will still be that these then just become new subtypes or new phenotypes that we then need to see whether they're actually predictive of um, predicting drug response. So somehow they still have to then get folded back into some trial design. I would say that that's one more reason why we're probably forced to think about these adaptive trial designs. That that if you start coming up with a whole variety of fancy new phenotypes and subtypes based on these massive shapes of data, which can even be changing over time and might make you want to make different sequential decisions for therapies, then uh, that has completely outstripped the wherewithal of a good old parallel group A versus B trial. And I don't think you can give up on doing a trial. I think you still need to randomize because all of these patterns um, are still just patterns. They're not they don't necessarily tell you causally whether if you interrupt the pattern with a therapy, you will then change the outcome. Well, we'll definitely be looking out for those trials in the future. Um, thank you very much uh, for your time. Uh, we're pretty close to uh, closing the podcast. Um, I just want to end off with asking you, um, which top three pearls do you usually impart to your fellows, the junior faculty in critical care, um, uh, to encourage them uh, to pursue a career um, uh, in IC research? Yeah, so ICU research, um, uh, I think a lot of biomedical research is uh, not just in intensive care, but in all fields, um, is going to be very computationally intense. 
uh, in the coming years. Uh, so I guess there's a couple of things. I guess, it, well, one thing I've been saying to people for years is medical school doesn't train you enough. So if you're really serious about doing research, you have to get into some sort of master's program. A master's in clinical research that's maybe heavy on statistics. Uh, it can be fun, even if it doesn't sound like it's fun. It gets you using your brain again in a way that medical school usually taught you not to use your brain. And it's a struggle. It's a real struggle to make an impact as a researcher today, especially in clinical research, if you don't have some sort of master's. So peril number one is get your mind wrapped around the idea that you still need to go back to school a little bit and do some didactic learning. Um, Pearl number two, I would say, is um, uh, I would encourage people to get close to people that inspire them. Uh, no one actively said that to me, but by coincidence, I ended up uh, I ended up in Peter Saffer's lab, and um, it was a life changing experience to end up working with someone who was really passionate about research, and it sort of it opened my eyes. Uh, Peter Saffer, in his seventies still had these bright, curious eyes of like a child, um, almost a childlike enthusiasm for sort of the quest for truth. And that was very inspiring and really good to see up close. And so I would really recommend that if you're thinking about research, uh, you think about trying to get into a group where there are people that inspired you, people that you heard at national meetings and you thought, God, I love the way that person speaks. I, I wonder if I can go work with them. And, and all they can do is say no. So I would, in, I would, I would encourage you to be creative in sending emails to people or finding out about what the opportunities and programs are to work with with people. Uh, Pearl number three. Um, I think the other thing is. Uh, Everything I knew about research in the early days um, convinced me never to do research. <laughs> that uh, that a lot of being on the ward, trying to help enroll patients into clinical trials at the end of an already busy day just felt like sheer labor. Um, and I wasn't uh, aware of how inspiring research could be. Um, so uh, don't necessarily be uh, put off by sort of the mind-numbing repetitive tasks which are in research but are actually part of almost every job to a certain extent. Um, but rather, to give research a fair crack at the whip, you, you, you have to work out whether um, you have creative juices and whether you like the feeling of being asked to try to be creative in order to solve a problem for the greater good. For me, biomedical research is, uh, uh, is very inspiring because there, there's such a, a nobility to trying to be um, 
trying to use every fiber of your brain uh, to seek truth for the betterment of your patients. A big thank you to Dr. Derek Angus, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.